Are we right? Let's just bow in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we just pause and come into your presence as a people who are thankful, as a people who call you Father. And Lord, for each of us here, as a people that need daily deliverance, Lord, so I pray this morning that you would deliver us, deliver us from our fears. Lord, deliver us from the things that, that burden us. Deliver us, Lord, from hopelessness and bring us to a place of faith and trust and as we look at this passage may we see something of God at work and God at work in our own lives we're so thankful for this and pray that you would bless us in Jesus name amen So we've come to the middle of the book of Daniel. This is the sixth chapter. There are 12 chapters. The first six chapters are very much focused on engagements with individuals and God's work interacting with individuals. The last six chapters, which I'm glad I won't be preaching on, look at God's work in the overall sweep of history and eternity. Same God. Isn't it wonderful that God is interested in the individual, the personal? He was interested in Daniel here. But he's also a God who is sovereign and fashions and plans and orchestrates all of history. That's our God. Back in um, the, it's the 20th century, it's the 19th and 20th century, that's a long time ago, there was a man called um, William Graham Scroggy, who was a Bible scholar. He was actually at one time uh, a, uh, the pastor, yeah, he wasn't the cricketer, <laughs> he was at one, <laughs> one time he was the pastor at, um, at um, the, the tabernacle where um, Spurgeon uh, preached. Um, he was a Scottish man. And uh, he became quite ill the um, uh, last 14 years of his life. He had to retire from pastoral ministry. And he spent 14 years um, studying the scriptures and writing a book. Actually, three volumes. I've got it in one volume, but it's three volumes. And... In that book, he gives a title to the scriptures. And it's actually a title for this chapter two, in a sense. But what title would you give to describe all of the Bible? Now, it's not a quiz. <laughs> but he put it this way, and I, I think it's wonderful. He, he described 
the scriptures, in summary, as the unfolding drama of redemption. The unfolding drama of redemption. There is one thread through all of the scriptures. God redeeming fallen man. Right from the beginning, from man's fall, right through to the book of Revelation, when we cry out, even so come, Lord Jesus. It's the unfolding drama of redemption. He also wrote that it's an unfolding drama of redemption with Christ as the sum and substance of Bible revelation. Isn't that a wonderful way to, to summarise and capture the book? And you may wonder, well, what on earth has that got to do with Daniel 6? I hope that you'll be convinced that it is by the time we finish. Another word for redemption there, if you like, another way to think about it is deliverance. See, when God redeems us, he's brought us out of slavery and sin and death. He delivers us. And this chapter is about deliverance. In fact, the first six chapters of, of Daniel are about deliverance. That's what it is. Uh, if we go back to Jan Daniel chapter 1, you'll remember that the young men, um, Daniel and his three friends, were delivered from, uh, you might say, a, a fate of death, quite potentially, when they refused to eat the king's food. And we read there that as for these four youths in Daniel 1, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. He blessed them and enabled them and placed them in a position where um, it, it was valuable for the king to keep them. And he blessed them physically as well, so that uh, even though they weren't eating of the king's food, they were still... Well nourished, it appears, on, a, on their special diet. I have a lot of dietary consultants in my place that tell me what to eat at times. But they were well nourished. In chapter 2 of Daniel, remember that the king had a vision and a dream. And he, he uh, basically told all of, all of his counsellors and, and wise men to tell him the dream and the interpretation. Of course, telling an interpretation is pretty easy, but telling the dream was a little bit harder. Uh, and the threat was that all of them would be destroyed. And so what did God do? God delivered them. He delivered them. And we read in chapter 2, verse 19, that the mystery of that dream was revealed to Daniel in a vision by night and then Daniel blessed the God of heaven and later on the king gave Daniel high honours. He was a man and the whole group of wise men in dire straits, not the band. They were in dire straits, they were in, in, in trouble, they were desperate. And what did God do? He delivered them delivered them through the man Daniel. Chapter 3, remember the furnace. Okay, these um, three men, friends of Daniel, who refused to bow down to the idol, the image of the king, and so they were going to be thrown into the furnace. 
And we read in chapter 3, verse 17, If this be so, the men say, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand. When we talk about redemption, we're really talking about deliverance from our greatest need, which is sin and death. But God is delivering all the time, even in the little things of life. Now, maybe you don't need deliverance in anything. (laughs) I do. Some of our struggles are bigger. Some of our struggles are severe. Some of our struggles are long. And we need to cry out to God for deliverance because that's where it comes from. For some of us, it's, it's, it's seemingly minor. It might loom large for us, the next job interview. <laughs> we need to be delivered from the fears and the anxieties. Same God that delivered these men from the fiery furnace can deliver us. And he does, even when we don't see it. Then we went on to chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, eating grass like an ox because of his pride. Was God there delivering? Yes, he was. He was delivering Nebuchadnezzar from his pride. He was delivering Nebuchadnezzar from the thing that would destroy him. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And if Nebuchadnezzar was going to receive and experience the grace of God, he needed to be humbled. Only because he didn't want to humble himself. And so... We read in chapter 4, right at the end, by humbling Nebuchadnezzar, this was his testimony. My reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honoured him who lives forever. Nebuchadnezzar was delivered. He was released from bondage to pride. And then chapter 5, last week we heard about the writing on the wall, and the king Belshazzar. Uh, He was delivered to destruction. But we get this little phrase in that chapter again that shows us that God is the God who is able to deliver. There's that little phrase where Luke dwelt on this quite a bit. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, well, Belshazzar had not honoured. But it's that very God, he's able to deliver us because in his hand is our breath and all our ways. So let's come to the story. What I want to do this morning now, we've reached chapter 6 now, you're wondering, wow, glad Got to, got to chapter 6. <laughs> um, I just want to trace through the story quite quickly. Whenever I say quite quickly, my, my wife thinks, oh yeah. <laughs> but I, I will, I'll write, trace to it because what I want to do is I want to follow up with this, if you like it, call it the application, call it the lesson, 
Call it the theme or the thread or the stream through this chapter and through all that's been coming before. That's that theme of deliverance. The theme of deliverance, where it comes from, where it doesn't come from, and how God enacts it in our lives. But the story goes like this. We will, I'll just go through it fairly uh, summary form. In the first five verses, Dar um, Darius sets over his governors, satraps. I love that word. It always seems strange to me, but, but that was the, the mouse traps, clap traps, something like that. But that was the word for governor. That, they were the governors uh, in the Persian Empire. And so, enormous empire, and so they need a bureaucracy just like we do. <laughs> and, and they had the same issues as well, because one of the reasons he wanted to set these up was uh, to, to make sure that the, the king's interests were looked after. No bribery, no corruption, etc. Uh, so, they, these were established. And then above them, there were three officials that were... CEOs, what do you call them in the government these days? Um, executive directors or something like this. Um, the ministers, they were the three top officials and Daniel was one of them. And then, what, of course, we, we know in the story, uh, Daniel um, has an excellent spirit. He just gets on with the job. I, I, I just love this man because he, he's not promoting himself He's doing what God called him to do, and he's doing it with all his heart. It's like Hezekiah. It says of Hezekiah as a king, it says everything he began in the work of the house of God, he did with all his heart and prospered. So there was a wholeheartedness and excellence about Daniel, but there was a problem. So this first, these first five verses, I'm labelling with the word pride, because these other officials were jealous. It would never happen in the workplace, would it? <laughs> and so they, they were jealous that Daniel was elevated to such a position. Now, Daniel wasn't elevated because he was trying to seek that position. He was elevated in the same way that God elevates people. He puts some up and he puts some down. And Daniel was faithful in a little, and God made him faithful, responsible for much, because he knew he would be faithful in much. And so these men were jealous, and so now they start con contriving, what are we going to do about this man? I don't know, initially it probably started as secret, little secret uh, discussions in groups, and it grew and grew. And before long, there was a whole conspiracy going on. These people were thinking about how they would get rid of Daniel. Um, but it was getting hard to do it because it says he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. And so they figure out a way to do it by, um, by taking advantage of his faithfulness, his faithfulness towards God. And then in the next uh, few verses, verses 6 to 9, uh, I'm going to move from the pride to the plot. So their deception, their malice, their cunning. Um, and we live in a word, world like this, of course. Uh, and so um, 
Daniel wasn't a man who was complaining about all that was going on. I'm sure he would have heard whispers. I'm sure he was conscious that there were people unhappy about him being where he was. But he just continued with his work uh, and his wholeheartedness. And so they create this plot. They bring this... I don't know how they convinced the king to sign the document, but I suspect there was an element of pride in the king's heart as well. They probably appealed to him thinking, well, king, you know, if you, if you um, set up this law, everybody that has to pray has to pray to you. You're the number one. We don't have to acknowledge any other ruler. You're the sovereign. And so they get the king to sign this law enshrine this law effectively that says you're not allowed to pray or request anyone but the king himself. Ha, we've got him. They thought they had Daniel. So what does Daniel do? Verse 10, he goes to prayer. He does what he'd been doing for years and years and years. So it wasn't, it wasn't as if Daniel was going to um, uh, pretend to be holier than thou. You know, I'm going to show what a great person I am and in, in the face of opposition I'm going to get up here and I'm going to pray just to spite the king. He wasn't doing that. Three times a day he prayed and it says as he had been doing previously. It was just the natural habit of his life. It was more than a habit. It was his life, his engagement and his relationship with God. And so in doing that, he was just continuing his walk with God and acknowledging the God to whom he can truly petition, not the king himself. And so then comes the prosecution, verses 11 and 13, Daniel's court, he's arrested. The enemies seem to triumph. The king's concerned. The king tries to deliver Daniel, uh, doesn't succeed. And we get to verse 16. And it says, Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Maybe... maybe, uh, uh, I, I don't know what um, Darius was really thinking. He obviously had a sense of Daniel's faith in God. Uh, he would like to see Daniel delivered. Maybe he was wishing and hoping that somehow he would be delivered. I don't know if he really believed that he would be. But that's what we come to. And then, of course, we see the wonderful outcome in verse 19. Um, the king comes to Daniel. O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And we know the story, of course, he had. God had shut the mouths of the lions. Daniel had been delivered. He says it was because I was found blameless. And later on it says it's because he had trusted in his God. And the two go together. He trusted in his God. He was blameless. He was delivered. 
Uh, and then you get that grisly part. By the way, that's not a um, that passage where the the men and the the children, the families were thrown into the lion's den. Um, is not an endorsement by the scriptures. <laughs> Darius was a cruel man. Some of the kings were cruel. Uh, it was a period where, which was much crueler in some respects than what we perhaps experience today, at least on the surface. And so it was not unusual for a ruler or a king to take vengeance in this kind of way. The scripture make it very plain that um, we're each accountable for our own sin, not the children for the parents or the parents for the children. What he did here was... Um, uh, was wrong to do such a thing. But this is the kind of man, this is the kind of ruler um, in whose kingdom Daniel lived and had to operate. And so these, the King Darius um, throws them to the lions. Uh, I guess it's a demonstration that the lions weren't well fed <laughs> when Daniel went in. And then uh, they're, of course, destroyed. And then it finishes off with what you would call praise. So I had pride, plot, prayer, prosecution, punishment, protection and praise. So that's Daniel 6. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Uh, there's a very good case that Darius and Cyrus are actually the same person. Okay, you could almost read that. Um, in the reign of Darius, also known as Cyrus the Persian. So, that's the story. Let's just think about this thread um, for deliverance. There are three, three places that we can go for deliverance and we see this in this story. Uh, Daniel was going to be thrown to the lions. We saw that. Um, but there are three attempts, if you like, or what could have been three attempts to deliver Daniel. And the first one is Daniel could have sought to deliver himself. And, you know, we read here that when that document had been signed, Daniel knew that it had been signed. He knew the threat that was against him. He could have compromised. He could have thought to himself, look, let's just keep this quiet for a little while. I don't actually have to pray with the windows open towards Jerusalem where people were going to see. He could have prayed in his room with the windows shut and, and so sought to save himself, sought to deliver himself. But 
that didn't fare well with Daniel's conscience. And so Daniel didn't do that. He opened the windows towards Jerusalem. He prayed in a manner that was um, consistent with the way he'd been doing for many years before that. And so he didn't seek to save himself. Now, I find this fascinating because my first inclination when I'm in difficulty is to think of a way to get myself out of it. That's not to say we shouldn't think or plan, but Daniel had such a heart and such a trust in God that his hope of help was not going to come from his own machinations and his own orchestrations and his own dealing with the situation. How did that happen? How does a person get to a place like that? I think the, the, the hint is in that verse itself. He had been doing this as he had been doing it previously. He had such a walk with God that uh, to him, uh, it's almost as if he would have been saying and praying what the, the, um, the three men said to the king before being thrown into the furnace, if you recall. Look, um, God is able to deliver us. He's able to deliver me. He will deliver me. And if he doesn't, well, I'm still going to do this because this is what God wants. So Daniel didn't try to deliver himself. Psalm 73, uh, a lovely psalm where it talks about, I guess, the struggle of the psalmist with why evil men seem to prosper. He comes to the end and he says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's conscious that his flesh and his heart fail. He's conscious that he's not able to deliver himself. He's conscious that regardless of what he might do, the psalmist, he's going to fail. Daniel could have tried to extricate him out of this, himself out of this situation. But hey, he still had 30 days to go and... Uh, his enemies are looking out for him. The chances are he would have failed in any case. In Romans 7.18, Paul echoes a similar sentiment where he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. There's nothing good whereby he could deliver himself from his bondage to sin and death. So we can't deliver ourselves. Have you demonstrated that yet? <laughs> Certainly not from the lions in our lives. Certainly not from the storms of life. When Peter was on the water during the storm, you'll recall, and Jesus invited him out and he walked on water. <laughs> That's what the word wow means, by the way, walk on water. <laughs> So, wow, he walked on water and then he looked away from Jesus and he started to sing. He couldn't deliver himself. Maybe in that instant he thought, wow, look at this, isn't this good? 
Probably not. I think in that moment he, he, he was amazed at what Jesus was doing. But as soon as he turned his eyes away and to himself and to the storm, he started to sing. And we're exactly the same. We can't deliver ourselves. We can't deliver ourselves from the lions and the storms. We certainly can't deliver ourselves from death. So Daniel's non-attempt to deliver himself failed, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. Who else tried to deliver Daniel? Well, it was the king. In verse 14, it tells us that the king, when he heard the words, uh, and the words were the indictment uh, that the uh, officials and the satraps had brought against Daniel. They reminded the king, oh, didn't you sign this thing, O king? Well, this Daniel, he is not interested in serving you. He's praying to another god. He's broken the decree. You have to throw him to the lions. But the king heard it, and when he heard those things, he was much distressed and he set his mind to deliver Daniel. So he's got an ally now, actually, the king. He's got an ally to deliver him. And it says that he was much distressed, he set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he laboured till the sun went down to rescue him. So it was pretty intense. I suspect he was going through, you know, like lawyers do, going through all the legislation, trying to find a loophole. Because as it stood, the law that had been signed by the king couldn't be invalidated even by the king himself. That was the law of the Medes and Persians. So the king was under this constraint. And this is why, by the way, Men and women, people can't deliver us because they're under constraint. Even the greatest of us, even the greatest outside this room, are under constraint. There are things we cannot do. And try as he might, looking through the legislation, <laughs> trying to figure out if there was a way out of this, putting all his effort to try and deliver, and he could not. Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4 says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. The context there is that if you want to get help, you're not going to get help from men. Now, I know we can help each other, right? And uh, people might be delivered or saved if they're drowning and someone knows how to swim and they deliver them. But we're very limited. And certainly in this context, when it comes to life and death, what can a mortal do? to deliver another mortal. 
What can a blind man do to help another blind man? And each of us have, have our struggles. If you've never had any trial or personal struggle or difficulty, cheer up, it'll come. <laughs> it comes to all of us. It comes to all of us. And that's just another way of saying we all need deliverance. Maybe you don't need deliverance from drowning because you didn't fall into the water. Maybe you don't need deliverance from financial stress because you've got money. Maybe you don't need deliverance from uh, fear of unemployment because you've got a job. But one thing you do need, you need deliverance from death. As young people, you don't think about death too much. I look at most people here and they're young. Maybe Rob is not so young, but... <laughs> we don't think about it. But our bodies are decaying. Alison and I are planning to visit a friend who lost her husband yesterday. She knew he was going to die. But, you know, we know that each of us are going to die. Some later, some earlier. So where are you going to look for deliverance? Not from another mortal. Jeremiah 17 puts it this way. It says, Cursed, it's stronger, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. We have a choice. We can trust in ourselves to deliver. And hey, we're living in an age where, you know, you can do anything. <laughs> Just set your mind to it. Now, I guess there's a lot to be said about positive thinking, but, but you can't deliver yourself. You can't raise yourself out of your own anxieties and your own needs. You certainly can't deliver yourself from death. So if you look there, there's a big negative, a big fail. And cursed is that man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. We can't deliver ourselves. Man can't deliver himself, us. Others can't deliver us, certainly not from the lions in our lives and certainly not from death. So... Delivering myself is not going to work. We see it in Daniel. His attempt not to deliver himself succeeded, if that's a way to put it. The king wasn't able to deliver him. Deliverance can't come by man. So how was he delivered? Well, we know the answer to that. God himself. Chapter 6, verse 27 of that chapter in Daniel, it says, he delivers, where, where Darius is now speaking of God, he delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. It's interesting, earlier on, uh, Darius expressed this sentiment. He said, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And not me, 
not yourself. May God deliver you. And then uh, later when he, uh, in the morning when he comes out, rushes out to see what's happened of Daniel, says, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Well, of course he has. He has been able always. He's been willing to deliver. And he did deliver. That psalm in 146 where it tells us not to put our trust in riches continues on and says in Psalm 146, 3 and 4, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord. Put not your trust in princes, in the Son of Man, in whom there is no salvation, but blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob and whose hope is in the Lord. And Jeremiah 17, for those that have have done those lessons, that's the tree by the waters passage, where it started, cursed is the man who trusts in the man and makes flesh his strength. It goes on in verse 5 to say, blessed is the man whose trust is the Lord. God alone can deliver. We know that, don't we? Well, for many of us, we would say, yes, I would confess that. So perhaps some of us doubt whether it's because of our own experience. Seemingly, God doesn't deliver. In Psalm 73, the psalmist starts off by saying he had almost slipped when he looked at the prosperity of the wicked and his own plight. And it seems that way, doesn't it? Life is often hard and it doesn't seem like it's going in the way that we would plan and we would hope. Where is God? He goes on in that psalm to say, I had almost slipped, I'd almost become like a beast. I'd almost forgotten who God is. And then there's the change that says, until I came into the sanctuary of God and then I perceived their end. When he stopped looking at the circumstance and the seeming inequity in it all, and he came to the sanctuary of God and then it says he could perceive their end. He could see when he saw from God's perspective that evil and sin has only but one consequence. And that's what he went on to talk about. His flesh, his heart may fail him, but God is the defence of his life. We're in the same boat. We're in the same boat. I want to finish off in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, because there are lots of things that we need to be delivered from in this life. Some of them we won't. God never promised to deliver us out of every circumstance. He never promised to deliver us out of every trial or every difficulty. That's what trusting God is. It's trusting that he 
knows best. In spite of the fact that I'd like to provide my consultancy occasionally. But he does know best. He's working everything together for good to them that love God. But Lord, it seems not so. But faith sees that glimmer of light. And faith sees that God is at work. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, whilst he doesn't always deliver out of every circumstance of life, one thing he does deliver and he promises. And it's the thing that matters most. Your biggest need and my biggest need is not financial security. It's not health. It's not even relationships, as important as those things are. When Jesus came into the world, the, the people of the day, the Jewish people, were hoping the Messiah would come to deliver them from what? From Rome, from the oppressor. But that's not what the angel announced. The angel said, you shall call his name Jesus, who shall save or deliver his people from their sins, not from Rome. We don't see it, friends. But our death, our mortality is a consequence of our sin. And what we need more than anything is the deliverance from that. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. Any man should boast. That salvation, that deliverance is never of ourselves. It's of God. And the promise is that he is willing and that he's able to deliver us. So we finish off. There are just two questions. The first one is, do I need deliverance? Do I need help? For some of us who may be sitting here thinking, I don't really need help. Well, there's not much to say. God will bring you to a place where you'll realise you need it if you haven't experienced it yet. But once I have that sense, once I recognise that I need help, the next question is, where am I going to look? Am I going to look to myself? And I'm going to look to others? Or am I going to look to a God who has demonstrated his love and willingness to deliver not only in this life, but to give me an eternity and a hope in Jesus. And that puts everything else into the right perspective. There's a hymn that we sing here at times. And it says, Jesus said that if I thirst, I should come to him. Jesus said, if I am weak, I should come to him. Jesus said that if I fear, I should come to him. But listen to this. Jesus said, if I am lost, 
he will come to me. God seeks us out. Such is his love. Let us pray. Heavenly, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you're the God who delivers. We're so grateful that we have an eternal hope. We're so thankful that we know that you love us because you have given your only begotten son that we might have life in him. And so we just want to continue to worship you, not only now in song but in our own hearts as we go through the day. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us as we...